Welcome to the Pencils and Lipstick Podcast, a weekly podcast for writers. Grab a cup of coffee, perhaps some paper and pen, and enjoy an interview with an author, a chat with a writing tool creator, perhaps a conversation with an editor or other publishing expert, as well as Kat's thoughts on writing and her own creative journey. You'll laugh, you'll cry, well, hopefully not actually cry, but you will probably learn something. And I hope you'll be inspired to write because as I always say, you have a story, you should write it down. This is Pencils and Lipstick. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Pencils and Lipstick podcast. Today, we are recording the 116th episode of the podcast. I'm pretty excited to see these numbers go up. Today I have with me Desiree Holt, who says she holds the title as the oldest author of erotic romance. She was a ton of fun to talk to. I am very honored that she took the time to talk to me about her writing journey, gave me a couple tips. Honestly, I learned quite a bit. If you don't know, Desiree has 300 books written. (laughs) My, My jaw just like dropped open when she said that because I had been on Goodreads and I was sort of clicking through trying to figure out how many books she had and the pages just kept going on and on and on. And so finally I just gave up and asked her and she said, she's pretty sure it's 300, which usually means it's more, you know, that's like the number that authors remember. And they're like, Oh, it's probably like this many, you know, Oh my goodness. The prolific writers like that just amaze me quite frankly. I mean, she hasn't been doing it for very long, about 15 years, maybe a little bit more. So I'm, I'm excited for you guys to hear about, you know, her journey and, and how she writes and where she's going. Um, and she has a new book out coming out in about a week from when this episode drops. So all those links will be in the show notes. So this week on my newsletter, if you're not subscribed to my writer's newsletter, I don't know why you're not, quite frankly. (laughs) If you want to subscribe to my writer's newsletter and find out all the things that I'm learning or seeing about writing in the writer's writing world, in the publishing world, subscribe to my newsletter. The link is below. It's it's pretty much dedicated to writing and what is happening on the podcast, what I'm gleaning from other people, what I'm learning, what I'm applying to my own writing. And this week I talked about focus. Does anyone else feel like they're having the most difficult time focusing? I don't know if it's January. I don't know if it's just, you know, we're in a third year of COVID or I don't know. We can always blame it on so many things, right? Like not enough sleep, except that I'm getting enough sleep. No problem. I'm eating well, I'm doing, you know, the intermittent fasting, which is supposed to just make your focus go through the roof or whatever. I know, I know none of those things are magic pills. I've actually always struggled with focus. I'm really seeing it now that the kids are older. And I think when you're, you have babies and you're traveling around the world and you're following your husband as he changes jobs and you're constantly, you know, resetting up house and babies and diapers and kids off to school, you kind of feel constantly twirling around and yet things get done. And so I think 
lack of focus can hide. (laughs) And I think it did with me because, you know, I would sort of walk around the house and dust and grab a baby and play with the baby and change the crib sheets, you know, and maybe mop a floor and make some food and bring them out to the park, you know, and it's just like this constant movement of doing things. And it's not that I'm, I'm terrible at finishing things. You know, I've, I have finished books. I have finished stories, but there are tons of things on my list that never get done. And a lot of times what I struggle with is like, what do I have to do right now? (laughs) Oh, I don't, I don't think I have anything that I need to do. But as I told my friend, Madison Michael, who is a romance writer, and we are going to have her on the show as well, just FYI, I like, I have my agenda empty, but that doesn't mean that I don't have anything to do. I just haven't done it. I haven't written it down. And now I'm kind of don't know (laughs) what I have to do. In fact, I found out that I double booked orthodontist and dentist, you know, those kinds of things happen. And that's why I always eventually get back to the agenda to come on cat. You know, that this is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to focus. I know that this is an issue in my bloodline because my grandmother used to do this. She was great at starting and not great at finishing, great at talking about projects, not great at getting them done. So it's something maybe a bit biological. I'm an eighties kid. So of course nothing really has ever gotten diagnosed, but you know, a lot of it, I'm sure, even if I could blame it on biology, I could still do a little bit better. But here's something interesting that you're going to hear from Desiree Holt. She is always working on two stories at once. And that sort of perked my ears up because I don't want to work on two stories at once. I really want to try this year to finish one book, at least the draft, and then go on and start the other one. I'm going to try it. But what it sort of allowed me to relax into was I can still allow my brain to think about the other books, to write notes about the other books, maybe even write some scenes in my notebook. I'm going to keep it to handwriting for the books that I'm not working on yet. So I don't have to peg myself into focusing all of my brain effort onto this one book that I'm writing. And I'm not sure why I think that I need permission from other people, but we're just humans, right? Like we need to feel this like, okay, we're in a club with other people. If Desiree Holt can work on two books at once, so can I. (laughs) And if you're not that kind of person, I do not recommend that you work on two books at once. But maybe if you're having a little bit of difficulty focusing on one book, I wouldn't go right away to, oh, this must not be good enough. Oh, this must not be interesting. It's not holding my interest because creative brains, I think are moving at like a hundred thousand miles an hour. We're always thinking of something else. We're always looking at something, you know, it's always like the people around us, the music, the birds, the sounds, the smells, they're always like hitting our brains, I think in a different way. And they're being processed quickly and put into stories and storylines can, you know, bombard us constantly. Like I can make, my husband can be telling me a story about work and I'll be like, well, what if this and this and this and this is the reason 
help you. Like, this is not fiction. You know, like, I'll just make up stories. My brain just keeps going. So I don't think that we need to go right away to, oh, this, this is not the book. This is not interesting enough. We need to allow our creative brains to have all the outlets. So my process this year is to work on one book, at least the the rough draft of it, right? And I have these two big notebooks behind me that I am cutting up into different sections and writing notes and a lot of questions for the next books to sort of, you know, have my brain really moving when I'm ready to work on them, asking the questions I want, you know, I'm doing the character profiles, the questions of what the motivations are, what do I want to have happen to them? All of these little things, sort of jotting them down. And when I'm stuck, I take it out, I read it and I keep going. Now it's interesting because as much as I'm sort of feel like I'm going back and forth and I'm having trouble with focus, I am getting words down on the page and that is all thanks to the sprints. So as much as I feel like, oh, I mean, I'll be sitting at my desk and like looking at these shelves that I talked about, I want to hang and I, I would like get up and hang one shelf and then sit back down you know, and write a little bit more. Like that's the sort of person that I am. I'll see dust. The sun will come through and I'll see dust and I'll get up and wipe that down and then sit back down and so, you know, I'm, I'm always, my kids will come in, somebody will need something. I'll suddenly need water. You know? <laughs> That's the sort of like up and down that I do, but I'm getting a lot of words down because of the writing sprints. And so if you haven't found timed writing or working in groups yet, I highly encourage you to, to do that. You can come try it out with us. There's quite a few other places that you can try it out. If you're open where you are with COVID restrictions and things, there might be writing groups meeting again in person, but timed writing works for me. It it gets me sitting down and this is writing time. It doesn't mean that I, for the books, especially that I'm typing for 45 minutes straight. You know, sometimes I have to look something up. Sometimes I just sit there staring at the screen, but at least my butt is in the chair thinking about the book and more or less only the book. I really try to shut off notifications and things like that, which isn't always possible being a mom of three who have a, you know, more active social life than me. (laughs) So it's not always possible, but as much as I can, I try to keep the notifications off and my, what I'm trying to train my brain to do is to know that this is book writing time, right? So if you haven't found those and you're having trouble focusing in such a way that it's affecting how many words are getting on the page, I highly encourage you to find a writing sprint group near you and try it out. Just try it. You can impose it on yourself as well. If you go and find a place and you just I don't know, put some headphones on, noise canceling headphones possibly, and set the timer and refuse to look at your phone and just write. Yes, there will be times that you're just staring, (laughs) but that's okay. It's just writing time, right? But if you want to try out sprints with us, of course, those links are always below. You can try, we have eight sprints a week 
there's definitely a time for everyone. We're looking at adding a few more, especially for like the West coasters. So if it interests you, um, you want to try one and the times are not perfect, you can contact me and let me know. So like, I really want to join this, but what are the times that would sort of work for you? We're looking to add some, it would be evening on the West coast, right? Instead of just because I'm on the East coast. So try them out. You get them for free for a week. So you can hit up eat writing sprints for free and you can check us out, meet us. We are pretty awesome. I'll just say (laughs) we're fun to hang out with and we get our writing done. So I encourage you to, to try writing sprints, whether it's with us at the creative writing community or with somebody local. Before we head into the interview with Desiree Holt, please consider subscribing and reviewing the Pencils and Lipstick podcast wherever you are listening to this podcast. Reviewing and subscribing really helps with the algorithm. It helps get the news out there, puts it in front of other listeners. And if you really enjoy the show, if you want to share it, on your social media, that would be absolutely incredible of you. Now, the links to Desiree Holt and her book are below, so you can go quickly there to find out more about her, to find the book that is coming out. And I recommend you follow her on social media because she answers personally all all of her social media. She's a really fun lady. I had so much fun talking to her. I hope this is not the last time that I get to talk to her. I hope maybe I can have her on again soon because she was very fun. So grab something hot to drink because it is freezing cold and enjoy the interview with Desiree Holt. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Pencils and Lipstick podcast. I'm very excited to have Desiree Holt with me today. Desiree is known to the world as the oldest author of erotic romance, but Desiree Holt proves every day that she is more than the sum of her years. She is the winner of the Epic Ebook Award and Authors After Dark Author of the Year and winner of the Holt Medallion. She has been featured on CBS Sunday Morning and in The Village Voice, The Daily Beast, USA Today, The Wall Street Journal, The London Daily Mail, and numerous other national and international publications. She enjoys football and reading and her three cats, who are her constant writing companions. Welcome, Desiree. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Well, thank you so much. I almost don't know where to start because you have, I was looking on Goodreads, you have pages and pages and pages of books. (laughs) You've written so many. Um, Would you tell us a little bit of how you got into writing? I always like to write. In fact, before I stopped working, I even took some additional courses in creative writing, but I didn't have the time to really get into it the way I wanted. I was raising kids. I was working, running a business. So it wasn't until I retired. But the last year that I was working, I was at St. Leo University here in Tampa. And everybody on my staff knew that when I retired, I was going to write a book. So they were all giving me ideas for this book. It was so (laughs) funny. I had this notebook with everybody's notes in it. And my husband, who was alive, was very supportive of it. Uh, We moved to Texas after I retired. 
And we'd been in the house about two years, and he said to me, okay, enough. You had a brand new expensive computer on your desk. The house is furnished. We've taken some trips. Sit your ass down and write if you're going to do it. So I sat down to write, and I had this book all planned out. And it was not a romantic suspense, a suspense with romantic elements in it. Because the books that I read were more like Phyllis Lindsay and Mary Stewart, Mary Higgins Clark. Um, they weren't the real romantic suspenses that you have to So I sat down to write this book. And at the end of three months, I had exactly three chapters written. And I wasn't getting anywhere with it. It wasn't doing anything. So this was before Kindle and before, right. you know, digital books. So I subscribed to the Doubleday Fiction Book Club. And one of the books that I got on this particular shipment was called Cry No More by Linda Howard. And I think everybody that likes romantic suspense should read that book. It's okay. wonderful. I stayed up till four o'clock in the morning to finish it. I said to my husband the next morning, this is the kind of book that I want to write. And I sat down and wrote my first book in an attempt to create a hero like the hero in her book. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I'll give it a shot. That wasn't the first book that I published, actually, because really? I kept writing after that. And I had my fifth book completed when I signed my first contract with a small press. Digital publishing was just coming into being. Small presses were saturating the market because the major publishers really didn't open the doors to new authors, you know? Right. So, anyway, the first book that I submitted was the fifth book that I wrote. Wow. But after they contracted that, they asked for other ones, and I sent them this book called Run For Your Life. And the book has been through a lot. It's had the name changed three times. Oh, the wow. publisher went out of business. It's now with another publisher, Wild Rose Press, who I've been with for 12 years. And it ultimately became the first book in what is a six-book series. And as I sit here at this computer, I am finishing the seventh book in that series. Oh, so you're still working on that series. I'm still working on that. It's called Guardian Security. Okay. The first book is, oh my God, let me think of the title. Anyway, it was bought by uh, Maple Studios. They do the reading apps. Okay, yeah. So the first book, and I'm embarrassed that I don't remember the name of it. But you, you have so many. I, <laughs> I think it's called Missing. Anyway, the books are Guardian Security. The book that I'm finishing now is called Missing Pieces. Okay. And it's all about these guys. And each, each of the first three books started out to be something else, too. The book that became the second book in the series started out as a romance with no romantic suspense in it at all. So it's kind of as I've gone through my evolutions and my writing has changed. Right. And adapted them. And loved my heroes. Right. So this agency was started by two guys who became friends in college. And now they have this agency that does black ops and all this undercover work and everything else. And they have... All of these interesting people who work for them. The second, 
the third book in the series was uh, Finding Redemption. And the hero in that book was modeled after a friend of my son's. Oh, wow. <laughs> and now he's making an appearance in book number six. So, oh, my goodness. Everything just kind of perpetuates itself. Right. So did you have any idea that you would continue with series when you first started out? Was your goal just to write one book or what was the goal at the beginning? I just wanted to finish one book and get it published. But the thing is, it's like a bug, you know, <laughs> Yeah. It's, it's like you get addicted to it. I finished writing that first book and I immediately started the next one and I, I couldn't stop writing. And that's, exactly what I'm doing now. My brain doesn't stop. The only time that I haven't really been writing, last October, I had an automobile accident and I was in the hospital for a while and in rehab for a while and I was not in a position to write. Right. But now I've started again. So I'm rocking along with it. So how many books do you have? Do you know? Uh, somewhere around 300. I was trying oh my to <laughs> I was trying to count them the other day, but part of the problem is that I've revised some of them. Okay. And then I have a couple that I've made into a two book set. So it's really hard to tell, but I would say if you strip everything else down close to 300 titles. And that's in how many years? Since 19, uh, since 2006. That's it? Oh my gosh. Okay. So how, let's go back a little bit to the beginning. Did you ever do any sort of fiction writing in your career before being a writer or any storytelling? I worked for newspapers. Okay. When I was in high school, I wrote a one-act play in French for my French class. Wow. Well, that's pretty impressive in another language. Yes, that was a real project. Uh, It was mostly magazines and newspapers. Okay. But that's a really different way of writing than telling a story. Definitely. I worked for a company that published five weekly newspapers in the area where I lived. And I got a job as what they called a stringer. You go in there and they give you your list of articles to write. You have to go out and do the research, go to the meetings, do whatever, and then get in there, sit your ass down in the chair, and you have like five and a half seconds to get this thing written. (laughs) That was good discipline for me because I worked okay. right to deadline. But it's still a totally different style of yes. writing. But I, I just, I wanted to write fiction. I just had this dream and I thought, you know, can I do it? And my husband was so supportive of me. He really was. And he encouraged me. And, and he was so excited when I sold it first. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, it is important to have somebody on your side, especially when you're starting out. Because I like that you even struggled a little bit in the beginning because it is so different. Right. And even though we have a, a story in our head, it doesn't always come out quickly onto the computer. Exactly. And sometimes a story that you think you want to write doesn't become a story at all. And sometimes the ideas come from any place. Mm. I mean, I have a couple of books. I have a series called Heroes Rising in L. James Brotherhood Protection Directors. And it's all about former SEALs who are out of the service and they've been injured and they're looking for a new place in life and what to do. Right. 
And the first book in the series, Desperate Deception, the plot was based on a three-minute scene in the TV show Chicago Med. Wow. And, and I have other books that I've had the same idea from, too. The second book in the Guardian Security series, I got the idea from, again, a very brief scene in CSI. And I okay. put it into a story. So, I, you know, you get your ideas from someplace. Sometimes it's people. Yep. I'm out and I see people and I think, gee, what if those two people aren't really together? What if she's running away and he's helping her? What if they're hiding themselves? It's just my brain never stops. Right. Do you think that's from your sort of newspaper years that you have to ask these questions in order to get, I, think I guess, so. an interesting column? <laughs> yeah, I, I do. Because before you go and interview somebody, you have to have your list of questions. Otherwise, you're there just stumbling over your tongue. Right, right. So do you start as a writer? So for somebody who's maybe starting out or kind of struggling with the the story that they're trying to write, do you ask those questions of your character before you start writing? Or are you somebody who just sort of dives in to the story? Kind of both. My books are all character driven. So the first thing I do is write a character profile for my hero, mm. heroine, and maybe for the major villain. And okay. once I get those done, the ideas come from their interaction. And then I make notes as I go along. I mean, it's, and a lot of times, like the book that I'm doing edits on right now, I'm changing so much in there because as I went through it doing the edits, and I have great editors, and she said, did you think about this? And then I stop and look at it and think, oh, yeah, it really would look better if he did this and she did that. Mm. So it's kind of my brain is all over the place. I'm not what you would call a really disciplined writer, unfortunately. I don't like to tell people that because, (laughs) okay, I'll just sit down and write too. I have an idea. I sit down and talk about my characters. The hardest thing for me to write in my books is the first chapter because that sets the mood for the whole story. And sometimes I rewrite that first chapter 10 times. Really? Because I've read your first chapters and they are like, they're fast paced. They really pull you in. Right. They're, they're really great. But that's interesting to hear that you might write them several times. Yes. Uh, I, I want to make sure that I'm setting the tone. And I think if I'm a reader. Yes. And I'm reading this chapter. Do I want to read the rest of the book? So that's what the first thing I want. Right. So when you're first drafting, you know, if you're in that, you've done your three characters or your two characters and you start writing, do you worry about the first chapter during the first draft? Or is that something that you come back to? All the time. All the time. I spend as much time on the first chapter sometimes as I do on the whole book. Oh, that's interesting. Because that's the key to the book. Right. Then it starts to flow. But it isn't until I get to 20,000 words, and I don't know how it ended up being that, that the book actually has taken shape and the rest of it I just coast through. Yeah. How many of those 20,000 words stay in the final draft? I would say at least half of them, maybe okay. three quarters. Now, and you're a very prolific writer. So, because I think sometimes at the beginning of the career, so I'm a, I'm on my fourth book. So I'm way far away from you. <laughs> but I find those 20,000 words also to be very, uh, just sort of, it feels a little, it's not always work. Sometimes it flows really well. 
but it's like getting to know those characters can sometimes be a little more difficult or it's like hazy. Fun. Yes. You know what I tell people? It's like giving birth. First you have the labor pains. Yes. You're in the hospital. Then the labor pains intensify. Then they give you an epidural. So you kind of calm down a little bit. And then the baby says, I'm ready to be born. <laughs> and then you hope that you have enough time to just move your fingers as fast as your mind goes, right? Exactly. exactly. What does your, your work day look like? You have the discipline to sit down from your newspaper days. So I think that's something that new writers who don't have that discipline, we kind of have to work on, right? Getting some, getting yeah. in the chair every day. But for you, what, do, what does the, the day look like? Okay, when I get up in the morning, I, I used to spend the first hour with my three kitties, but unfortunately they were, they all turned, 19, and they all crossed the rainbow bridge. Oh, I'm so sorry. So that's been kind of sad. Yeah. But I get up and I have coffee, and I like to read the news headlines and the sports headlines on my iPad. And then I sit down. I do my email first. I take care of any business I have to take care of. I do my promo for the day, and then I start writing. Hmm. So you do all of your business and promotions yourself? No, I have a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful assistant who handles it. And we use a couple of promotion companies to small ones for the stuff that she doesn't do. But there's a lot of stuff that I do personally. I go on my social media platform mm -hmm. because people want to interact with me. And I, right. if they're taking the time to post something, I take the time to answer them because otherwise they're never coming back. That's very nice of you. So, well, but, you know, if I'm not nice to them, they will for my books. <laughs> That's true. I like, I like that you uh, are humble like that. You want to interact with your readers. I know I some writers aren't like that. Besides, I want to know what they're looking for and what mm. they're thinking. Because if I write things that they don't like, what's the point, you know? Right. So, and I'm always asking by the way, for I'm always asking the questions. What places do you like romantic getaways? What do you think is a great date? Describe the perfect hero. Describe the perfect heroine. What kind of, of a mystery do you like? I and mean, things like that. And I keep all those notes because I want their input. Right. So right. so that's what I do probably till around 10 or 10 30. And then I write for the rest of the day. Do you work on the same book all day long? Sometimes. I usually have at least two books going. And that's so there, there is a myth that you have two books open at the same time yes. circulating. So yes. you do. Yes, I do. Because I can hit a blank wall in one of them, and then I go to the other one. Or sometimes I'm in the middle of one, and I get an idea for the other one. And so I pause and go back to that one, work on that, and come back to the first one. Well, that's very interesting because I, I know lots of people that would say we have to focus on one thing at a time. I've been told this multiple times <laughs> for many things in my life, but I have a very hard time focusing on one story at a time. Yes. And if you can't focus on one story at a time, don't worry about it because it means that you have a very creative brain and your brain is telling you, tell all these stories. And there's nothing wrong with it. 
And one book could give you ideas for another one. So, you know, you have to go where your head tells you. Interesting. I'm going, I'm going to write that down and, and take your advice instead. <laughs> okay. Now, are those two books that you have open, are they separate series? Or does it really not matter? Same. Could you repeat that? Is it, would it be like on the same series? So book six and book seven or whatever? Or would it be, you know, sports versus? Oh, no, because I just today finished the final edits on a book that's going to be part of a series of L. James Brotherhood Protectors. And the book that I'm doing the second edits on now is part of my Guardian Security series. Okay. So you have not related in any way except the romantic suspense. Right, right. So with all of your series that you have, how do you get the research done? Are these things that you sort of know about beforehand? Do you research while you're writing? Do you yes. have people who tell you <laughs> that you can call up? All, all of those things. Okay. I have a sheriff's deputy that I tap for information. I have a really good friend who is a former SEAL who is himself a best-selling author and we're giving away one of his books in my Facebook group tonight because today we're celebrating the release of Absolute Zero. Jack Carr is one of the nicest people I have ever met in my entire life. And he's busy himself. He's working on his sixth bestseller. He's wow. all over the place. And yet he answers my questions for me. And he's just really, really nice. I have a friend who is stationed at McGill that I can contact. I mean, I kind of collect people all over the place that are experts in something so that I can go to them and say, can you this Right. So for, for a new writer, somebody who is kind of needing that, would you suggest they look around them or, you know, sort of write emails to people? How, how would you, do you have any suggestions on how people would find contacts like that? Okay. I think it depends on where you want to do your research. Mm. Sometimes you can go on the internet and just type in what you're looking for and a gazillion articles will come up. And sometimes in those articles, there will be contacts in the area where you live. Sometimes you don't even have to live in the same area. You can look for something for the subject that you want. For example, I have a series called Night Seekers, and the fourth book takes place in the state of Maine. And murders in the state of Maine are handled by the state police. Mm -hmm. So on a Sunday morning, I called the state police and asked to speak to the director of publicity. And he spent three and a half hours on the phone with me. Oh, and wow. All of my questions. Now, not all of them can do that. Right. They'll just hand you off to somebody else. But I found that if you contact the person or one of the people you need to talk to, they will either answer you or they will direct you to somebody else who can do it. Alison Brennan just posted on her Facebook page, as a matter of fact, how lucky she is. When she started out, she didn't have any contacts, and she discovered that if she just researched them and knocked on the doors, literally and figuratively, she could get the information she wants. And that's kind of what you have to do. You have to not be afraid to ask the question. Yes, to ask the questions. I think that's really encouraging that if, if you need some answers, most people are willing to yes. spend a little time. Yes. 
so because you, um, I'm just so amazed about how many different series <laughs> and books you have, but when you are writing all of these, I guess, where is the line when you're writing the suspense in which all of the research has to be exactly true? Do you know what I'm trying to say? Like, where's the line on sort of bending those rules as a fiction writer to make sure they get out, you know, or they get together or the villain, you know, dies. Here's the rule that I follow. And I got this from Allison and there are other authors who write in the same genres. Mm -hmm. If you're writing about things like police procedures, anything that is an everyday or common thing, Mm -hmm. have to be exact and correct because if you're not, People will spot it and they will say, she doesn't know what the hell she's talking about. Mm. If you're making things up, like I have a series that I wrote about the Chupacabra. Do you know about Okay. The- yes. Okay. So I wrote a series about the Chupacabra. Well, it's all make-believe. Right. I can write anything I wanted. So it didn't matter. The only thing that I had to kind of stick to was the actual procedure in the sheriff's office. And I just needed a little of that. So it depends what you're writing. But if you're doing anything with the military, with law enforcement, with education, with anything that has its own structure, you have to be accurate because okay. if not, people will jump all over you. People will notice, right? And then yes. you'll get those reviews where they'll, they'll say that this, should, this is more fantasy than fiction. <laughs> exactly. And you need your fans to want to write to read the next book. <laughs> so, yes. so the you, you're saying that right now you're working on. I think you said you were working on a finishing a book that goes to your first series. So you haven't you haven't finished a series and then gone on to a series. You've kind of done um, sporadic writing, I guess. Right. Yes, that series has been going on for several years now. Uh, but in between, I've been writing other series. Okay, but because they're in the the romantic suspense, do you think that's why fans follow you probably through it? It's in the same genre? Yes, because they like the pattern. Okay. Boy meets girl. Boy and girl get caught in a harrowing event. Boy and girl have a sexual attraction to each other. As they resolve the situation, they have really great sex in the end. They get the villain and they have a happy ever after. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and that is your plot structure, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's all you need to know. Now, now you have to fill in all the middle middle things. Exactly. So we were talking the other day, me and, and a few authors, and a lot of authors seem to get stuck in the middle yes. of the story where they sort of, I don't know, there's like this you get bogged down with maybe too many ideas or not enough ideas. Do you ever get that feeling? Not very often, because usually when by the time I start the book, I mean, I don't have everything outlined like a lot mm. of authors do, and I don't have diagrams and all those things, but I know where I'm going. Mm-hmm. So if I am working on a book and I find myself getting bogged down, I just put it aside. Mm. Then I tell myself, you're overthinking the book. Oh, okay. And I go on to another one with a fresh brain and a fresh idea. And while I'm working on that, the people in the first book are talking to my head and they're saying, okay, okay, this is what you have to do. Now put that other thing away and come back to us. That's interesting. So you just, you just 
give it a rest a little bit because I think sometimes in this day and age we don't have enough moment of peace to let our brain sort of right organize everything that's going on do you find do you find that you get those characters I guess talk to you while you're working on something else or maybe while you're taking a break okay so you're literally working on something else and they want your attention yes (laughs) doing that then I have to stop everything and decide who I'm going to listen to (laughs) it's just I I will tell you I mean everybody's got their own perception Mm -hmm. of what kind of procedure excuse me procedure to follow right and I've tried in the last few years to change my own procedure and be more disciplined and do different things. It didn't work. I didn't even like the books that I wrote because they mm. were if they weren't spontaneous and they and they weren't selling as well. So I thought, this is crazy. I'm gonna go back to the way I used to do it. Yeah. And and now my books are selling again and people are reading my books. Every writer is different. You can have a structure that you use as a guideline, but there's nothing that says everybody has to follow the structure. You can have basic ideas that you use, but there's nothing that says you can't change the ideas as you go along. For example, this book where I'm doing the edits on right now, there's a scene, my editor made a suggestion, I'm rewriting the whole scene from the heroine's point of view instead oh, of wow. the heroine's. And there's a lot of changes, but it's coming out different and better, you know? Yeah. So you have to be flexible. Nothing is written in stone. There are some writers who are so disciplined that they outline every single thing in the book, and that's what they follow. There are some writers who are totally seat-of-the-pants writers, and that's what they do. You have to do what works for you. Mm. There are no rules in writing. There are only guidelines. And you have to do what will, in the end, produce a book that if you were reading, say, I love this book. Yeah, I I do think that you're very right about that. I think, you know, 20 years ago, there wasn't all this information. We didn't have the internet like this. And now we almost have too much where I feel like we can get bogged down in everyone's ideas of how we should write instead of just writing. Everybody's an expert. Yes. (laughs) Everybody's an expert. You have to do what works for you. Are there certain disciplines to follow? Yes, you you want certain guidelines so that your book will turn out to be really good Mm -hmm. but you don't want cookie cutter books every book should not be written exactly the same and there are some people who don't veer at all from the guidelines they use and there are some people like me who change a book in the middle because they got a better idea I mean it's just it depends on what works for you and what your readers like and that's what I go by yeah that's amazing. I, I think a lot of times people are scared to get to the middle of a book and change it completely because yes. they feel like it's almost they wasted their time or something. But exactly. But I don't think that anything written is really a waste of time because sometimes you have to write all those words to get to the idea. Exactly. And and, and that's why authors rewrite too, because they get it down and then they change it because the better idea comes forward. You read it and you say, okay, this should be this and this should be that. I had a new book released today called Absolute Zero. It's the first book, I think it's the fourth book in a series called Galaxy about four seals who are friends. They all leave the service on the same day. They have a celebratory dinner. They decide to buy a Powerball lottery ticket. 
they win $6.1 billion. Nice. They're going to start their own black ops agency. But they don't want an office because they don't want people to be able to eavesdrop on them. So they buy a plane and their office is in the plane. Oh, wow. If you want to uh, have a meeting with them, you make an appointment to go for a ride on their plane. When I got to this fourth book, I was struggling in the beginning because I was trying to be too disciplined in it. I don't know why. And I thought, forget it. I'm just going to write what's in my head. And I started all over again. And the first reviews are in on the book and they're all five-star reviews. Right. So you have to do, you have to feel good about what you're writing. If it's something you would want to read, you would enjoy, then that's how you have to write it. Everybody likes something different, just like everybody writes differently. Right. There are no hard and fast rules for how to write a book. Just check your spelling and your punctuation. That's the only thing I tell people. <laughs> yes. Well, how how important do you think it is to find that right editor too? Because it sounds like your relationship with your editor, you have a lot of confidence in each other in which if she suggests something, you go back and really look at it and try it out. It sounds like your relationship is pretty strong there. Yes. Well, I write for three different publishers, plus mm-hmm. I'm self-published. I have an excellent relationship with all my editors. Just like I was telling you before, this book, the one I'm working on now, where my editor said, why don't you try this scene from her point of view? Mm-hmm. You know? And darn, it's really working out a lot better. So you have to trust your editor. They have to understand your voice and know what's in your head. And not every editor can do that. But when you get editors that do and you trust them, then you you, you know they will help you produce a good book. For example, the first round of edits that you get back has all the crap stuff in it, like Mm -hmm. change this word or that doesn't work or blah, blah, blah. And, And then it has the editorial comments. I have such a good relationship with my editors that when I get that first draft there, I just click accept all changes, which is all the little things I fix, and work from the comments because that's the meat of the book. I don't oh, need wow. I don't need to have a heart attack over whether I should use this word or that word. If they think I should change it, I'll change it. Yeah. Yeah, I like how you said have a heart attack. A lot of times we get those edits back and there's so many. <laughs> yes, exactly. And there are some editors that are really nitpicky, but right. that's just who they are, you know? Yeah. Um, so I figure I, I don't have the time to decide if I should use this word or that word. They think I should use it? Okay, except all changes. Mm. So it's really important for a writer, I think, to, to find an editor and if they're self-published, I guess, to find somebody who's really going to be kind of that other voice, that person yes. who will read their books and be honest with them and let them know what's going on. Because writing a book and editing and putting it out into the world all by yourself without any feedback, to me, sounds a little crazy, but <laughs> I don't know what you think. No, you're absolutely right. And I have read books by authors who do not use an editor at all. And let me tell you, they are a disaster. Mm. There's misspelling. There's yeah. incorrect punctuation. There's incorrect grammar. There's a lot of things in there. There's They change point of view in the middle of a paragraph. They do all kinds of stuff. And, and 
you want to say to them, you know, if you would just take a little bit of time and work with somebody who knows what they're doing, this would be a really good book. But right. now it's a miss. Right. Yeah, we seem to think that we should do it all. And I, I don't know why. And I'm trying to break people's perception of that because right. I, I don't know any other art in which people do everything by themselves, never with any feedback. No. But because we're in our offices all day <laughs> and we don't have to go see people, I think we think it, it's almost like I've heard somebody say working with an editor or with a writing coach, we now have, they feel like their book isn't really theirs. Like it's too influenced by someone else. And I think that that's crazy because they've always worked with editors or writer, you know, as writers. A lot of people are probably going to be upset with me if I say that, but I find that more with writing coaches. And I do with editors because I find writing coaches want to imprint their own personalities on the book. Mm, they yeah. want you to write the book the way they would write it, not the way you would write it with their input. A good editor helps you produce the book the way you would write it. The editor helps you fine tune it. Right, right. That is true. And a good editor, like for my self help stuff, I use Wizards in Publishing. There are two editors. One is the developmental editor, which is the story. And then the other is the one who always tells me I have too many adjectives or too many adverbs in the book. That's right. <laughs> but they have to be people who are into your story and aren't changing your voice to make a better book. They're just helping you massage it. The yes. very first editor I ever had had been an author herself. And I remember the first thing she said to me is, you're going to write the book and I'm going to help you make it sing. And I always remember what she said to me. And a good editor, that's what they'll do. Yeah, I agree. That is that is a good definition of a good editor because there are some people I've worked with where it did feel like they were trying to change the story completely. Yes. And while I accept feedback, like as the author, there are times where you think, no, this this is the story. It's not not just changing perspective. It's completely changed everything about right. this person. I had that happen in one book that I wrote, maybe the second year I was writing. Mm. And it was set in Texas. And Texas, maybe more than many other parts of the country, has its own language, its own vernacular, its own tone, whatever. Mm -hmm. So this author I had was a New Yorker through and through. And she rewrote sections of my book. So they were using sayings and, and actions that are very New York and identified with New York. I finally called the publisher, who was a friend of mine, fortunately, and I said, I can't do this. I'm just going to pull the book because she's ruining it. She actually called the editor to talk to her about it because she had apparently been doing it with a couple other books. And she said, you can't make every book into a New York book. And if that's what you want, then you can't edit for us. Right. But I, I mean, there are editors who don't edit your book. They rewrite it to their book. And you have to be careful of that. Yes, you do have to be careful of that. If you are an indie writer or you're a new writer being traditionally published. Yeah, I, it would still, I would say, still try to stand up for your book and tell the publisher that. Right. It's not a New York book or, you know, it's not a whatever book that they're trying to change it to. Because I think we always want to, we're going to want to look back on our books fondly and say, yes. that's still my book. It's not, 
my edit half my editor's book. <laughs> no, we don't. Exactly. Exactly. It's your book. It's your baby, you know, and you want it to be what came from your heart and you want guidance and you want direction, but you don't want it rewritten. Sometimes it's little things. The first book that I wrote for Kensington, the hero went to a fundraiser. The dictionaries, I'm trying to think, oh, Merriam-Webster is the one they use. Fundraising is hyphenated mm-hmm. and fundraising is hyphenated. I was a fundraiser for 10 years for St. Leo University. And nowhere in all of my professional life and even in the professional organization did they hyphenate fundraiser or fundraising. And I went to the mat on that. I said, I don't care what you say, I'll pull the book, but I'm not hyphenating it. And everybody that's in the business would look at it and say, is she stupid? (laughs) So sometimes you have to be prepared to go to battle. You have to have what backs you up, you know? Right. Right, so, the experience that you had back then. Uh, yes. But again, it goes back to also people who want to change the book to fit in a certain format or a certain form. Even for a first-time author, if you believe in your book, you have to fight for it. You have to preserve the story and you have to preserve the flavor. You want your editor to help you polish and tell you where you're going off in the wrong direction, but you don't want him or her to rewrite it for you. Right, right. I want to ask you about reviews. How do you handle reviews? You did mention a a few years ago, you were trying to write in a different way and you weren't getting the reviews that you normally get because most of your reviews are extremely good. You have many, many thousands of reviews and it's not that easy to have five-star books on Goodreads, which you have. It isn't. Well, how how do you deal with bad reviews or reviews that you, you know, aren't as high as they were? Well, first of all, you're going to get some bad reviews. Mm-hmm. I mean, even people like Laura Roberts get some bad reviews. So I know, it's yeah. insane. <laughs> okay. But my mistake was, as I said before, that I tried to change the way I was writing because I was listening to the wrong people. So mm-hmm. You have to do this and you have to change that and you have to write this way. My books lost their flavor. And they didn't reach the hearts of my readers mm-hmm. or the reviewers who said, this book is stiff. I don't relate to the character. I mean, all these things. So I just thought, okay, why am I making my life this so effective in the way that I used to write? And now people are buying my books and I'm getting good reviews. Yeah. So you just moved on. You just, I okay, just I'm going to move on to the next book. I just, I just, that was a conscious decision to go back to the way that I wrote, with the way I loved to write. I had to remind myself I'm not writing a composition, I'm writing a crucifixion. And that was the difference. Okay. So you 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 wouldn't go back and rewrite those books? You you would say just go move on and write another one? Yeah, I don't have time to go back and rewrite. <laughs> you don't. You have, <laughs> you're on a mission of like a thousand books. <laughs> now, there are some of them that I have rewritten, but only because I've made them like in a two-book anthology. Okay. And, and so I wanted to make sure that they blended with each other. Oh, so okay. I corrected the two things. But no, I mean, it isn't worth my time and energy to go back and rewrite it when I'm already into five more books than I have right. to do. So. Right. So maybe if you get a review that isn't typical 
I guess some of them we just have to brush off, right? Maybe it's just not the right reader. Maybe it's not. And there are some people who review books who make it their goal in life to give one-star reviews. They think they know better than every other author. Many of them are frustrated authors themselves, and they feel that their credentials are polished if they give bad reviews. So, yeah, I I just brush them off. (laughs) I figure, okay, you're not wasting my time anymore. I do pay attention to the reviews if I think that what they're saying is valuable. This one review, for example, contains a criticism, and I look at it and I think, she's right. I should have done less than so. Then I make a note, and I pay attention to it when I'm working in my next book. Hmm. Don't pay attention to the ones that are so obviously egotistical. Hmm. Yes, that that is a perfect way to say that. Yes, um, I, I I agree. There are some people who... I think that they want to be New York Times critics. Yeah. <laughs> they want to be up there. So I think what's wonderful about your books is that they are character driven, even though they have tons and tons of action. I want to say to anyone listening, if you haven't read one of Desiree Holt's books, you're going to find this amazing blend of character and action. Cause I think sometimes in the genre there's suspense and thriller and they are more plot driven and the characters don't always change as much or develop as much, but you are fast paced and your characters are intense and they are moving and changing as they go. So I think you're a perfect example of being able to blend both of those worlds, the the action and the plot and the character. I, those are the kind of books I like to read too. Mm. It was just like when I read, Linda Howard's book, Cry No More. And that wasn't the first one of her books I had read either. But she had this character in there, Diaz, that I just so fell in love with. He was a complex character. He he was a typical anti-hero. He was appealing in so many ways, and yet you could be afraid of him in so many ways. But he was he, he was just, you could fall in love with him. And that's what made me turn everything around. Because mm-hmm. I thought, I want to write a hero like him. I want my characters to be like he is, to reach into your mind and your heart. Mm-hmm. The plot of from that. Interesting. I, re- I, I love that because I love writing from the point of the, the character, like getting into the character. I'm a people watcher. I find people fascinating. We do the weirdest stuff and make the strangest right. decisions. And I like what you're saying. I, I think it's interesting how you took a book that you loved in the character and kind of instead of listening to everyone else, I know at that time the internet wasn't as noisy, but it's like taking almost that as, as a framework to write then the character that you love. This is a character that spoke to me. So I'm going to not copy them, but sort of find a way to make my, right. develop my character as deeply as that one. Exactly. Interesting. I love that advice. Well, thank you so much, Desiree. I I feel like I could have you here for another two hours, (laughs) but I thank you so much for coming in and sharing about your writing with us. My pleasure. I invite everybody to join my group on Facebook, Desiree's Darlings. We have things going on all the time. Every Friday, we have guest authors. Oh, wow. Mondays and Wednesdays, we allow guest authors to post about their new books. 
I'm on Instagram, so find me there. I'm on Twitter, find me there. I have a newsletter. If you go on my website on the front page, which is where you can sign up for the newsletter, and everyone who signs up gets a free book, and this is the only place you can get the book. So I encourage everybody to find me electronically. Yes. And to email me with questions. I'd love to talk to my readers. Yes, you are an extremely responsive writer, <laughs> I have to say. And I think it's amazing that you are the person on the other side of Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. I think that's really encouraging to readers because they, like you said, they want to hear from you. Yes. And it's wonderful that you bring in other authors. And you have a lot of different giveaways that you're constantly doing. So it's very active. It's a very active place. Some people have Facebook groups and they're never there, but yours is is very active as well as your your website. So I will definitely put all the links in the show notes below so that everyone can go find Desiree Holt. Thank you. I Again, I recommend everyone pick up a book. If you want to know how to have a good plot that's action-filled and really develop characters, you have 300 books to choose from. And all go out and pick up Absolute Zero, which released today, and Defending Sophie, which came out in November as part of a five-book series with four other authors, which so far has outsold every other book that I have ever written. Oh, that's wonderful. I will make a note and put those in the show notes as well so that everyone can find them very easily. Thank you so much again, Desiree. Thank you so much for having me. I had fun. Hey, you're still listening. Since you are, could you do me a favor and head over to the app that you're listening to this episode on and hit the subscribe button and then rate and review the show? It would really help the Pencils Olympic podcast get out into the world. And if you're enjoying the podcast, well, then there might be more people out there who would enjoy it as well. If you want to find out more about me, you can head over to catcaldwell.com. I have my story over there, my books, my interactive journals, my one-on-one coaching information, and information on my creative writing community membership group. If you're looking to write a book or you are a writer and you just want to find out more about how to write, how to publish, how to format, how to market, and all the things that go into being an author these days, check out the membership group. There is a 14 free day trial that you can try it out, get into the masterminds, find out all the goodies that we are talking about in the group. I would love to see you there.